0: Even if you make that choice from a place of love and care and a genuine belief that it's the best thing from your baby, it is still incredibly traumatizing.
1: Hello, and welcome to Fuck Yeah, the podcast where we say fuck yeah to queer doulas. I am one of your hosts, Sarah, and I am joined by my sparkly co-host,
2: Robin. Hello. How's it going? Hi. Good. How are you doing? I am hanging in there, <laughs> living life. Oh, oh, oh <laughs> there's, a st- there's a story behind this. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's giving you a fuck yeah right now? Anything? Yeah, well, I actually, I have a pretty big, huge, giant fuck yeah, which is that after years of thinking about it, wanting it, but not thinking I could have it, pining for it, I finally told my partner that I wanted to live in the house behind our house, which used to be my mother's house. And I did it. He did not like that idea, but I still did it. And I feel much better already. And my big plan is to take this house and let it be mine. I'm kind of going through a big amount of people-pleasing recovery. Mm. I want to decorate the house. I want to have my own space where it can be really quiet at night. And I know that I'm off-duty. Um, You know and other nights where I'm on duty but I just I want like the peace and the quiet and I want to really create an environment for myself like also all this stuff of like knowing that I have ADHD now and knowing that oh there's different techniques for like keeping your clothes off the floor like you know instead of doing hangers and folding which is like this kind of thing that it stops me from cleaning up have hooks and bins and things like that where you can just everything has a place like I want to put hooks everywhere in my house now because of just get it all uh-huh. off the floor and I can see it and it's like not getting wrinkled and just all of these things like it's simple simple stuff that I'm really excited about I a little bit feel like kind of like leaving home for the first time You know, when you're got that excitement where you're like, oh, but I don't have the fear part of it where I'm like, oh, I'm certainly going to (laughs) fail at life. But um, I don't know. So I'm really it's a big, huge, fundamental change for me. And I was terrified to do it. And then I did it. And, you know, the worst fear is that it's not going to be well received. And then it's not. And then you're like, okay, all right. (laughs) We'll work this out at some point, you know, but I kind of need this, yeah. I mean, I was gonna
1: ask like, what does that mean for you to like have your own space? But it sounds like it's kind of about setting different daily routines, mm-hmm. rituals,
2: having control over the energy of the space. Yes, yes wow. music and I don't know. just i'm I'm really excited about it. so
1: and what do you envision for the boys? That they like go between houses or?
2: Well, and, and I just want everybody to know these houses are literally 10 steps apart from each other. It's like, I mean, that was one of my partner's worries is that it's going to be weird for them or that I'm like abandoning uh, them or the family. And um, when I talked to them about it, they were like, yeah, we want to live back there too. And I was like, all right, hold on. <laughs> You know, like, so we've already done a sleepover in the back house since I've been here where, you know, there's certain nights where I put them to bed or certain mornings where I wake up with them. So they know now on my mornings, they run to the back house as soon as they wake up. And then on the nights where I'm putting them to bed, they're actually sleeping in the back house and doing like a sleepover, which was super fun and casual. You know, we've lived here their entire lives. We've been here 10 years and it's like, I really want to utilize this blessing of a property that we have, this blessing that's like born out of so much pain in a lot of ways, you know, through my mother's death and everything. And there's also a big heart connection for me in that back room where I watched her die. Yeah. You know, and for a long time I was scared to be in that room. Like I would get Mm -hmm. frightened. Like when I was a kid trying to take out the garbage at night or something, I'd be like, and that went on for a couple of years. And then over COVID, my youngest really encouraged us to go into the back and spread out. And I've just loved it ever since. And now that room feels like the safest room in the whole property for me. That's the mm-hmm. room I most want to be in. And I feel like it's a process of my grief with my mom to be able to like, like if, when you can masturbate and then the same room that your mom died in, <laughs> there's a certain amount of like healing, you know, like masturbating yeah. where you're not thinking about like she doesn't pop into your head suddenly like that takes yeah. a long time to get yeah. to that point. But it's like a certain amount of like healing. So I, I know I'm heading in the right direction. It's still very, very difficult in how it's affecting my relationship, but it feels so right. And I feel good about sticking up for myself about something that I've really wanted for many years so. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that like the thing that's hard with long-term relationships is finding that balance of allowing the ebb and the flow and the changes mm-hmm. and the ways that when you get into a space or you get into a relationship, the things that you want
2: mm-hmm.
1: evolve and change. Yep. And I know that when I started going through my divorce, like we had a situation where there was a garage that maybe someone could live in Mm -hmm. and I had never given myself permission to kind of think about the separation of the house or like, you know, our living situation until it had just gone on. Like it was at the point where I couldn't kind of there exist in yeah. that relationship. And then after the fact I sort of felt like, oh is that something that I left on the field? Like was that something mm. that could have given me the space? I mean, I'm not trying to suggest that I regret the choices that I made, but you know, when you really have to like evaluate, oh, okay, let me do a little debrief with myself. Like I was disappointed that I didn't at least explore maybe sooner um, what it would be like to be in a more alternative living arrangement to just have some room to breathe. And each of us kind of ground in ourselves and sort some things out. And I think that, you know, we think of these things, any move away from the nuclear family Mm -hmm can be really scary for some people and what you might be embarking on right now is actually just like such a blossoming Mm -hmm. and an evolution for you, for your marriage, for the family. Um, And I really hope that for you all. Thank you.
2: And especially for you. Thank you. That's my highest expectations for it or hopes for it. but. Yeah, we'll see, we'll see what it holds, mm. what happens. But yeah, yeah. I, I don't like this idea that we're all supposed to be in the same kind of family. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And especially to live with the same people sleeping in the same room for <laughs> decades. I'm like, yeah, wow. Yeah, 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 it's pretty I, wild, huh? <laughs> yeah, this is by far the longest relationship. I mean, this relationship's longer than any I've had by 10 years. And it it's new territory all yeah. the time. So yep. yep, you know. Wow. Well, good luck with keeping
1: the clothes off the floor. Thank you're you. You're Have to report back.
2: Yep. <laughs> You'll see how it's going next time you're over. <laughs> Your ADHD den. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Well, we have Ryan back today, which we told everyone that we were going to break up that interview. But before we dive into that, Mm -hmm. I came across something this last week. And because we are now in the final week of Pride Month, I really wanted to share it with you. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of the Lesbian
2: Seagull Study? Lesbian Seagull Study. I want to say yes only because I've heard of lesbian birds. Well, and I know that there's gay male penguins at a zoo that take care of their own egg or something or rock. Yeah. Yeah. That was more recent. So I'm going to say no. I I, I want to know what it is.
1: Please inform me, Sarah. So I was listening this week to one of my all time favorite podcasts, You're Wrong About, which (laughs) used to be hosted by Sarah Marshall and Michael Hobbs. It is now just hosted by Sarah Marshall. Uh, Michael Hobbs has lots of other great podcasts. And it's like a debunking podcast. It's really fantastic. They were covering the episode, I think, is actually titled Get the Gay Penguins. Mm. Um, but the I think it's Lulu Miller from Radio Lab, who Sarah has on the show. She was so great. And she is obsessed with homosexual animals. <laughs> Good for her. <laughs> because one of the arguments, right, that Christian... Um, and folks of faith make about homosexuality is that it is not quote unquote natural because you don't see it in the natural world.
2: They're just not looking.
1: I really encourage people to go and listen to this episode because actually there's a whole history of scientists who have observed homosexual animals In nature, and for a variety of reasons, the research and the data has been suppressed. Mm -hmm. But in 1977, Dr. George Hunt was researching seagulls 40 miles south of Los Angeles on an island. And uh, he and his wife at the time, who was his research assistant, started realizing that a lot of the nests had extra eggs. Hmm. They were like, this is a bizarre phenomenon. They realized that not only were there excess eggs, but that female birds were nesting together, exhibiting all of the behaviors of paired male-female seagull partners. Mm -hmm. This is from the article from 1977 so one of the female gulls assumes a male role and the birds form stable unions like those of heterosexual seagulls they go through the motions of mating lay sterile eggs and defend their nests like other couples hmm. dr george hunt's wife is named molly i'm sorry his co-researcher mm-hmm. and they studied 1200 pairs of seagulls for 5 years on santa barbara island And about 10% of the seagulls exhibited lesbian partnerships. Now, come to find out there were some factors impacting the male seagull population at the time. Okay. Uh, What is the chemical DDT? Uh Uh-huh. There were high levels of DDT in the water and male seagulls were more impacted than female seagulls. Okay. And this study was released in 1977. So this is at the height of Anita Bryant's yeah. anti-gay campaigning. Oh, this became a huge phenomenon and just, like, ignited the gay community and also, like, all of the anti-gay folks because they were outraged that research money was going to okay. research uh, Lesbian homosexual seagulls.
2: animals. Oh, my God. So, wait, so... This is like the first time that there's been widely known research about homosexuality with animals in the American culture. That's the first time. This was released in Science
1: Magazine, Mm -hmm. and it is the very first time in the United States that this data was not suppressed. Not that it was the first time that this type of behavior was observed. Yeah. But it's the very first time that this data is actually released.
2: It just shows how deep the prejudice is, you know? Absolutely. So deep that we cannot even think that this could be normal in all creatures.
1: Well, and here's the interesting thing. Good old Molly and George Uh just think that this is amazing. They're so excited that they have discovered that seagulls will form pairs and rear... The, because, you know, some of the eggs were fertilized essentially mm-hmm. by the presence of a male bird. There were some birds that were observed over time actually going through mounting process, like two mm-hmm. female birds mm-hmm. mounting and going through the whole ritual of courtship. And here's the thing I think is so interesting about it mm. is that it's actually an adaptation that the seagulls are making in order to keep the species going. Right. The male population declined and the birds adjusted mm-hmm. to mating habits that were different than what they normally would engage in, in order to make it so that they could rear the young more effectively. hmm. So they haven't seen as high a rate (laughs) <laughs> of like, lesbian <laughs> partnerships in seagulls since like all the DDT stuff got resolved. They continued to study seagulls for a long time. The pairings did decline over time. But there is a lot of evidence that there are homosexual pairings of all kinds of animals. Goats, penguins will come together to rear young or partner for life. Mm-hmm. And I just, it really... Warms my heart.
2: And that it came out at such a key point, you know, in time is so great. Also, like these radical lesbian seagulls making a splash. I would love to see more research, like in detail, like, I want to know where the gay male seagulls are. There has to be some, right? Well,
1: this was so interesting
2: that they observed no male-male seagull pairings. Right. Well, I wonder once they come back, if then they there's gotta be a couple, right? I don't know. I don't <laughs> or, know. They, they did not record any. <laughs> I want to know the ratio of the lesbian tops. And the are there any, are <laughs> there any like Femi ones? You know, like, how's how are they flagging? How do they find each other, the romance and everything? We need more detailed research. I also want to tell you about something that I read about, I I remember reading this. It's like a weird. I was in San Francisco at that bookstore, that famous bookstore. What's that called? City of Lights. City of Lights. Okay, so I was at the City of Lights bookstore. I was in my very early 20s. You know, it's a radical bookstore that has really unusual books. And I opened up this one that was an entire book about homosexuality and animals I just happened to open up to a certain page that talked about hyenas. And I will never forget this. Do you know about homosexuality and hyenas? This actually rings a bell. Okay. Aren't they pleasure seeking?
1: There's animals who have sex really just for pleasure. And hyenas
2: are really slutty. Hyenas are a matriarchy. And the females have three inch long clitorises that they fuck people with, not people, people. that they fuck other hyenas with, to, male or female. Anyway, they're just such like punk butches, you know, like, I just love them. <laughs> they're just laughing and having a good time. They are bad bitches. I'll tell you what, I'm into hyenas and they're three inch long clitorises. Now I got to look it up and make sure that this was right because that burned into my brain. Oh I my was gosh, like,
1: wouldn't that be hysterical if you misremembered it?
2: <laughs> what if it was completely wrong? I think I'm right. I'm gonna look I it think up. You're right. I think you're right. We could just start making shit up <laughs> yeah. right now. Wait until you hear about fisting with elephants. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's not easy.
1: <laughs> the, um, the thing that also stood out to me about this gay seagull study is that people were so pissed. Yeah. Like a group in New York, once it came out, published a statement proclaiming that 100% of seagulls in the five boroughs of New York City were heterosexual. Oh my god.
2: Oh, it's <laughs> so insane. And that wasn't a joke. That sounds like an Onion article.
1: I know. Doesn't that seem ridiculous? There's a whole like page taken out in the Orange County newspaper just absolutely talking about the collapse of society Mm -hmm. now that money is going to study gay birds
2: (laughs) the panic the panic and now what's next drag queens reading to children yep yeah yeah
1: sorry (laughs) calm down (laughs) i guess for me I have a little bit of solace in knowing that what is happening is not new. And I, that is not to minimize mm-hmm. the bigotry, the harm that is being caused right now by outlawing gender affirming healthcare. Yeah name changes, drag performances, like finding every way possible to criminalize trans and gender Mm non-conforming folks. I, I'm not minimizing that. And at the same time, there is, I am encouraged to know that we have fought this fight Mm -hmm. before and we have come out with wounds yeah. And real pain and trauma and also we are really fucking resilient. Yeah. And yeah. I just really appreciate those little lesbian seagulls for Ugh. reminding me of that. Trailblazers.
2: Real trail <laughs> you know it wasn't easy being the first out animals. It wasn't easy. Think of the backlash. <gasps>
1: I mean, luckily they lived on a little lesbian island off the coast. Oh, what a dream.
2: So, yeah, so they, with they their did. supportive allies around them. <laughs> uh, do you know cuckolding comes from birds' behavior? Yes, I did
1: know that. And cuckolding is the fantasy of watching your partner be fucked by somebody
2: else. Right. And it comes from chickens. It's not chickens. It's um. It, oh, it's cuckoo birds. Oh, now that sounds. Now I feel like I'm really wrong, but I believe it's cuckoo birds. <laughs> Just got all so right. Bad. Another like fact it. check. I believe it's cuckoo birds, and there's something that they do where they will put their egg into another bird's nest to get them to raise it. Oh, <laughs> 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 oh goodness!
1: Wow. You brought something to my attention from the last episode. I think we were at the end getting a little, not heated, but it was, you know, we were we were worked up. It was hot in the trailer. We were talking about abortion, but I think I might have suggested unintentionally that planned pregnancies lead to better parenting outcomes that wasn't what I was trying to say. Yeah. And I appreciate you for calling it out because I would never want to, I mean, I was an unplanned pregnancy <laughs> and I don't, you know, <laughs> Yeah. I don't want to further any like stigma or shame mm. that is associated with that and I do not believe that Um, in order to parent while you have to plan your pregnancy. So if that came across like that's what I was saying at the end of the last episode, I want to apologize for that. And also be a little bit more mindful when we're getting, you know, all worked
2: up. Yeah, that I'm still thoughtful about what I say. I really understand your intention with that. And it's always nice to clarify that. I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, I think that the thing that I do feel strongly is that people should have the choice, right, under any circumstances that
2: they get pregnant, as to whether they are going to parent or not. Yeah, and going to continue pregnancy and birth. Like no, but yeah, nobody should have to do that because they don't have
1: another viable option available to them. Exactly. So with that, let's bring on Ryan again, because now we're going to really dive into it. And Ryan's going to school us and further educate us on the adoption system in our country. Let's dive back into our interview with Ryan. Okay, let's talk a little bit about adoption. Yeah. Because I think there's some misconceptions in the mainstream conversation around adoption. I feel like <laughs> you have some thoughts on this. So I, What do you think is missing from this kind of mainstream, I'll just use that word again, understanding of adoption in this country?
0: To start, I think that our idea that if you get pregnant and are not in a position to parent, you should just go with adoption instead of having an abortion as if those things are alternatives to each other is wildly Mm -hmm. misguided. Abortion is an alternative to pregnancy. Whether or not to go through a pregnancy, the health risks, the complications, the time off from work. Is one question.
2: The permanent changes to your body.
0: Right, right. I just just go through just, with the pregnancy. Just
2: do it. it makes me so mad. I had a horrible pregnancy each time. They were physically so demanding. It makes me so mad that just go through with it because the pregnancy alone can be traumatizing. I, I think birth is often traumatizing. But then I haven't even thought about all of this stuff that goes on afterwards with what you're saying with the separation. Of I had never thought about that, but obviously that must be Crushing.
0: Uh, and you know, I think that's really tied to the idea that people who become pregnant and decide not to parent uh, just don't want their baby. And that is not what is happening the vast majority of the time. Usually, people who are pregnant who end up considering adoption oftentimes already have kids already feel financially maxed out and unable to support another child, often lack family support or other resources to make parenting a child feel feasible. Sometimes they didn't find out that they were pregnant until too far along to make a different decision. It's very, very rarely that someone just isn't attached to this baby and doesn't care on the contrary, to be concerned that you are not enough for your baby is to Mm. care about what happens to your baby is to care about your baby. And, um, you know, a huge part of that is this social environment that we have created where The idea of a perfect parent looks a really particular way, right? It looks like someone who is married, someone who owns a house, someone who has financial resources. These are Mm -hmm. the most fit parents, the most deserving parents. And if you bring a child into other circumstances than that, you are selfish or irresponsible or unfit. And perhaps not only should you consider giving your baby to someone else, but perhaps someone will make an effort to take that baby from you. Right. Wow, to be in that position is to have so many cares. Yes. <laughs> so that question of you know to to parent or to pursue adoption is loaded by so much someone's individual circumstances and also everything that we've taught people about who is and is not a fit parent. I think that people do not understand that. I think that we have a very different view of people who are just, you know, irresponsible and being reckless or loose or, you know, getting pregnant on a whim. And they obviously didn't care what they were doing. So they should just give up their baby Uh, and give up. Right. I really, oh man, I really like that um, language of like gave up the baby for adoption.
2: Yeah. It's a great, Wait, wait
0: yeah yeah it's a it's a really intentional choice to place a child in an adoption right there are really clear lines around who gets to have more agency in the choice of how they place their yep. child and who has their child taken and placed I think that all of that is is a huge thing that we're missing in our understanding of adoption, and that even if you make that choice from a place of love and care and a genuine belief that it's the best thing from your baby, it is still incredibly traumatizing.
2: Yeah, being
0: separated from your child is a pain that that I, I can't compare to anything else. Uh, I I would go through the physical pain of birth a thousand times over before before I, I would wish the pain of child separation on anyone and. and and I'll tell you what I um I got pregnant a second time by surprise in between my first and my second kid, and I had an abortion so fast mm-hmm. for the second wow. time because I did not think that I could possibly go through that again. I knew I couldn't. I I I couldn't. My mental health could not withstand it, and so I didn't. And I I don't regret that. You can't possibly know what you're signing up for making the choice right. to go through with adoption. And th- this really brings me to the other big thing that I think people don't understand, which is that adoption is an industry. Mm, interesting. Yeah, it's, it's regulated really differently state by state. And you have both nonprofit and for profit private Whoa. adoption agencies and even in nonprofit agencies you have prospective adoptive parents paying 20 30 50,000 to these organizations Whoa. to go through this process you know i think people hear nonprofit and think that means no one is making money off of it right mm-hmm. people's whole salaries are relying on this continuing to happen and what's so interesting about that is that if adoption was truly about what's in the best interest of children it would be right. an industry that's trying to make itself obsolete and it's
2: not. Yes. The for profit or the quote unquote nonprofit adoption agencies, it's primarily white kids. Am I wrong?
0: People of color are far more likely to have their babies taken away by the state because right. of hyper scrutiny and criminalization. There are children of color in private adoption systems. What's interesting about private adoption versus foster care largely is that people seek out private adoption because they want an infant. They want a blank slate upon which they can paint Mm -hmm. the family picture Mm -hmm. that they've already had in their mind and they're looking to fill a hole. Foster kids are often a little bit older, um, already have connections to their families of origins, already have experienced trauma from family separation are not, they're not blank slates. And that's difficult. There is a huge commodification of infants, which includes on a racial basis within private adoption industries. And there are agencies that will charge different fees oh, along racial God. lines. Of course. Sometimes that <sighs> pertains to children with high medical needs or with disabilities, but also it happens along racial lines. Jeez. What is also just so fucked is that the, the laws about when parental rights can become irrevocably terminated in a voluntary private adoption are different in every state. There are states where you can sign away your parental rights irrevocably within 24 hours of your baby's birth. No one who has given birth in the last 24 hours is in a state to be making an irrevocable decision. Yeah. about the custody of their infant. It's insane. Your body is going through so much, um, to say nothing of what kind of drugs you might be on, especially if, right. if you had a C-section. There are adoption agencies that cater to prospective adoptive parents by doing their best to guarantee placement of an infant. And the way that they do that is by preying on connections in adoption-friendly states, which are states with the most severe laws around terminating parental rights. So there's, there's an agency based in New Jersey where you have, I think it's 30 days, more than a day to change your mind. But they will source their babies from Utah, where the parents have far less time so that the adoptive parents can feel secure that they're not going to lose what they paid for. The product they paid for. Yeah, yeah this behavior is predatory and it's wildly commodifying of infants. There are dozens of waiting prospective parents for each adoptable infant. There's a shortage of adoptable infants in this country and a surplus of people who want a baby specifically who are unwilling to adopt from foster care, which tells you all you need to know about how altruistic adoption is. And it's created this competitive environment where agencies, in order to satisfy they're paying customers will create all kinds of coercive circumstances for expectant parents, like housing them with the prospective adoptive parents during their pregnancy, building a relationship between the prospective adoptive parents and the expectant person that creates a sense of indebtedness Mm -hmm. on the part of the expectant person, guilting them, and also withholding information about any available resources that would support them in parenting if they wanted to. I (laughs) worked with an adoption agency with my first baby that's considered one of the most ethical and birth parent friendly. They did not tell me about WIC. They didn't tell me about SNAP. They didn't tell me that an organization called Saving Our Sisters exists specifically to support birth parents and keeping their children if that's what they want. None of it. None of it. They showed me profile after profile of their waiting clients and fed me this narrative about how I could give this blessing to these other people and give my child the life I wanted my child to have I and mean, my child would be so much better off and I could have as much contact as I want, I had all this power it was such a good thing when none of that is is real, right? I didn't have wow. power the second my rights were gone I they're over permanently, the birth certificate is reissued with the adoptive parents' names wow. on it as if I never even existed And additionally, the simple fact that people have money does not mean that they are the best parents or better parents. It doesn't mean that they Mm -hmm. won't get divorced. It doesn't mean that they won't abuse. It doesn't mean that they won't find themselves in different financial circumstances. It it does not guarantee your child a better life by any means, but it does promote the proliferation of this industry and paying people's salaries. And so it's impossible for privatized adoption, which at this point, I, I largely consider legalized human trafficking a system that creates this sort of poor reproducing class of people who can yes. do the labor of birth and the wealthy yes, parent family class of people who get to enjoy the joy of family life and the social benefits that come with that and all of the applause for being the saviors who are willing to take in someone else
2: the child wow that's a lot of layers yeah i feel yeah. like the adoption industry could take a few notes from kinky people about fucking consent they broke all the rules there's five parts of it there's it needs to be informed enthusiastic non-coercive um and a bunch of other, i should look it up fries
1: I like to say embodied instead of enthusiastic, but I digress. That's
2: right. No, I've been, thank you, because I've been feeling like enthusiastic's a little too hyper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know?
1: Yeah, because there are things that you can consent to that you are not enthusiastic about, but that you're able to stay in your body around. That's a good point probably in, when thinking about informed consent in relationship to adoption in particular, like you can be making a choice that you believe in and you stand behind yep. and still be absolutely wrecked by it. Yeah. Yep. And I think on the flip side as well, you know, when you're talking about there's no guarantee about what's gonna happen with the adoptive parents, I think of my own experience becoming a parent and the fucking rose-colored glasses that i had on about parenting you know Mm -hmm. and i I, like Adoption was something that was in my mind that potentially was gonna be something that I would explore because as a queer person going through the fertility journey, you just, there's no way to know that that's gonna happen. But I felt incredibly committed to wanting to parent. I also happened to feel like the pregnancy experience was something I I wanted to try to experience. And the way that I went into it was so ill-informed. I'm not someone that grew up, you know, I had a really big family, but my mom got the fuck out of Texas, you know, as fast (laughs) as she could. So I was raised as an only child, pretty separated from my family. I didn't have a lot of experience, like helping raise younger kids when I was young. And the experience of parenting is something that you cannot prepare for. Nope, nope. There's no way. You just absolutely can't. And you know, All of us face plant around it at one time or another. And then, you know, hopefully you get your shit together. But yeah, this idea that there is a narrative that is sold around someone is going to be better at this than you are. And therefore, this is a really positive decision for you to make. And the manipulation that goes into kind of creating a sales pitch around, imagine this life, nobody knows what that experience is going to be like. And nobody knows what the trauma of being fractured and separated from your family of origin is going to be like either. It's so beneficial for your kids to be able to continue to have a connection to
0: you. Oh, absolutely. And that's well studied. Adopted children who, I mean, any kid is entitled to knowledge about their origins and any kid should have that access so long as it is safe. Right. And our social narratives about adoption are so predominantly led by adoptive parents and the people who applaud them. You know, like right. you hear mm. the story of how I completed my family by collecting all these children from all these different countries or from my country or whatever. And now I have this like picture perfect Christian family. And we really rarely hear, we, we never hear from birth parents because yeah. that's a shameful position to occupy. Right, And we don't hear mm-hmm. from adoptive particularly adult adoptees, the, the idea is that adopted people should be grateful right, that they right. were adopted and given the life that they had and they should be quiet. But when we do listen to them, we hear that there is a lot of trauma that comes with adoption. There is an increased risk of suicide that comes with being adopted. There are there is a huge problem with a, a lack of agency. You don't even have to tell kids that you adopted that they are adopted. Mm, That's fucked, but but those those days are changing. We're we're going to have a big reckoning with how we handle adoption very soon and how we withhold information from adopted people because of the proliferation of DNA-based genealogy sites. You know, now you have people doing Ancestry, 23andMe, and finding out that they were adopted, but also finding people that they're related to. No one should find out that they're adopted that way. No one should have information about their origins withheld from them. And now you can't, you really can't do that anymore because people can grow up and go on these sites and find out for themselves. And you could avoid all of that conflict by being open and honest and building Um, open relationships, but we really don't do that.
2: It's making me think about how there's this horrible history of forced adoption of Native Americans splitting up families, and then the connection to trafficking and basically... A form of selling people.
0: Yeah, yeah. Kind of
2: got this sinister layer to it that is not in the mainstream at all around adopting.
0: Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because that's the thing that I was really excited to talk about. So, yesterday, the Supreme Court decided to uphold ICWA, which is the Indian Child Welfare Act. Mm. This is a law that was passed in 1978 largely in response to the history of indigenous child removal, right? We had boarding schools, assimilation, these Mm -hmm. these projects of genocide where we remove indigenous children from their families, from their communities, put them with white Christian families or in Christian boarding schools, only teach them English, cut their hair, feed them certain foods and obliterate any of their cultural heritage And, and obliterate their genetic heritage too by isolating them from people who look like them and placing them in white communities. Right.
2: Well, and at times, obliterating their lives. Like, didn't they find a mass grave at one of these boarding schools?
0: Many of these boarding schools in the U.S. <gasps> and Canada and Australia all have done this. Yeah. Um, and all have had these mass graves turned up because these schools were not caring for these kids. Right. It was a project of colonialism and taking over the mm-hmm. United States and eliminating the problem of the people who were already yeah. here, either through yeah. murder or assimilation. Wow. Uh, and it, when it comes to children, largely, there were attempts made violent attempts to assimilate prior to the welfare act being passed about 35 percent of native children were being forcibly removed from their families from their intact families from relatives who wanted to keep them and placed with white families
2: like still in the 70s they were doing it
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so when this law was passed, it gave tribal governments exclusive jurisdiction over children who reside in reservations and Native children outside of reservations in any matters of custody, foster care, and adoption. And this is important for a number of reasons, right? It allows communities to self-preserve by placing children in culturally appropriate homes, placing them with family members, placing them where they have connections to their origins that not only benefit the children psychologically and in terms of having community, but also allow these communities to continue to exist. In addition, we know that there are a lot of struggles that we have created for people living in reservations. Mm -hmm. Struggles with mental health, with substance use disorders, with access to resources, to food, to stable housing, those are... those are problems that we have created, but Mm -hmm. those are problems that we will now use as justification to take Mm -hmm. the children away. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's that's another way that, you know, when people hear genocide, they're like, we're not doing that because they think that what it means is you're like straight up sending an army to just massacre everyone of a certain rate. But it's actually these really insidious patterns of systems that work over generations to eliminate people. And this is one of them. Making a reservation unlivable and then punishing people for not being able to live there by removing their children is, how you, is wow. how you obliterate them. So this law was super important because it interrupted that process. That law was challenged in this case called Helen versus Bracken. The Brackens were this, this white couple from Texas who had adopted a Navajo baby, a 10-month-old, in 2017. They wanted to adopt this child's sister, but the Navajo Nation intervened and wanted to place the sister with extended family, and mm-hmm. the couple rejected that and sued and tried to argue that the ICWA was in violation of the Texas Constitution, that it was racial racial discrimination, all this nonsense. And wow. part of the argument that they made was that they had more money than this child's extended family, and therefore they were more fit parents to be given this baby. There were two wow. other white couples from Nevada and Minnesota who also joined in this case, who also had adopted or were trying to adopt Native children against the wishes of their tribal government, mm-hmm. against the wishes of these Children's Extended Families. And some of them were were successful. So they sort of compounded this case that was threatening this law. And that's been going on for the last couple of years, I think. The case was heard in November. And the decision by the Supreme Court to uphold the law was just made yesterday. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's really important. It's a small win. You know that this law is the bare minimum of what we can do to create protective circumstances from which other kinds of improvements can be made, but losing it would be a really big deal. It's also uh, really notable to me that these are white Christian couples, yeah. because when we start to look into individual um, cases of adoption and particularly transracial and transnational adoption by white Christian Americans, we see a lot of coercive conversion, a mm-hmm. lot of abuse, a lot of I'm adopting because this is the godly thing to do. And parents who are completely unprepared to raise children who either abuse, murder, or give up on these kids. You might've heard a story of, a couple of years ago about the the parents who drove their car full of kids like off a cliff
1: yes Ugh. yes yes oh it was a lesbian
0: couple mm-hmm. just tragic yeah super tragic and what's what's awful is that it's you know people always want to point to sex work as like the the monster of human trafficking in this country and it's not it's labor and it's adoption especially in private adoption once those kids are adopted. Nobody's doing their due diligence to make sure that they're okay. There are Facebook marketplace groups where parents who are in over their head with typically transnationally adopted children will try to rehome them because they can't handle it, as if they're placing a puppy.
1: This reminds me also there is a documentary called Our Father. This isn't an adoption story, but it is a fertility doctor. In the 80s before there was regulation on and there is I will tell you having gone through at-home insemination the regulation of sperm is now like really a thing and it was difficult to do it at home but he was replacing his sperm with at the time they were using predominantly Physicians in training, I can't remember the official name, but they would go across the street to the hospital, get some sperm from the young what? doctors. The nurses would keep it warm in their what? bra, walk it across the street. Oh, my God. He would swap out his sperm oh. with, without informing oh my God. the couples. Through 23 and <sighs> Me, a whole bunch of people discovered that they were related It's considered that he was doing this as part of his religious Uh. ideology. He's part of a group called Quiverful where your highest service to god is to have as many children and raise them in the faith as possible now obviously this isn't everyone who is going through the adoption process is not doing it to serve god but there is it is where there can be these extreme cases where people act incredibly outside of their value set towards this higher good that then becomes just toxic
2: yeah well even if it's not overtly religious in so many ways i think it's an unconscious for many people maybe conscious for other but it's a way of perpetuating this white supremacist attitude and classist attitude Mm -hmm. about you know what ryan was saying with the oh i have more money i'm more deserving
1: well, and that, I think, it has been the basis of, I mean, up until the law that you're talking about, the idea that being able to raise children better
2: mm. than poor people. Yeah, or brown and black people.
1: It's like poverty does not inherently make you a bad parent.
0: There's no evidence. It doesn't that. make you good. Yes. Yeah. You know, these these extreme cases are are shocking and heartbreaking. And it's easy to feel really far away from them because we for those of us who are not religious fundamentalists, it's easy to look at religious fundamentalists and be like, well nuts. But I think that all of us, you know, would benefit from sort of stepping back and really trying to extract the core ideas that drive someone to behave in such an extreme way. And I think when we do that, just like you're saying, we we realize that these are very common ideologies. And I think something that we have to interrogate in that process is why we are so Mm -hmm. attached to the nuclear family. Why Mm -hmm. do we not raise children more communally? Why are there not more opportunities for people who don't have children, who maybe want children, who maybe are struggling to conceive, who maybe want to have a different role, why are there not more opportunities for them to be a significant adult in a child's life? Why have we latched onto this idea that mom and dad are the one true authority, the singular responsibility. If you can't do it on your own, you're a failure. No one can question your judgment. We know the answers to these questions. Fractioning people, creating these little micro-families that are expected to be Mm self-sufficient, keeps people riding You know the capitalism will, keeps them going to work, keeps them struggling, and prevents them from organizing. And independent, well-connected communities, intergenerational families, wide systems of support not only create counterbalances for parenting decisions and additional input and additional eyes on your kid and additional resources, uh, but also free up parents with a little bit of time to think about other things, to continue to be their own people, which makes them better parents, and also to be participants in society and care about causes and care about what's happening in their governments and in their communities. There's a a motivation to prevent us from moving in that direction, and we do that through stigmatizing. Um, But I think that we would all do really well to come in much closer and kind of be up in each other's business, particularly when it comes to child rearing in a way that we've become really uncomfortable with, um, and which is also unnatural. You know, people all over the world and all across time have been doing parenting for the most part of a very different way than what we're fucking doing now.
1: It's unsustainable and it's isolating. Yeah. And you're right. It's
0: it's entirely in service of capitalism. Yeah. I'm really happy to see this trend of like the mom union and straight single <laughs> yep. women starting to realize that they would benefit from the camaraderie of other women and that, you know, you don't, you don't have to do these things alone. There's a like a, a polyamorous, like, family influencer group that I follow who are launching an app for people to find like-minded other parent or other adult connections to sort of build these little communities very specifically um, with the attention, intention of alleviating pressure from, from parents. I mean, even, you know, we all know that That's even great. a two-person team is not enough. The adults need to outnumber the kids by more than two to one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> If we did that, so many more people who were perhaps unsure of their ability to raise a baby by themselves wouldn't be mm-hmm. thinking about doing it mm-hmm. by themselves and wouldn't feel so much pressure That's right. to hand over their baby to somebody else who then has all of the power to cut them off forever yeah. Yeah, without without a thought for what that means for that kid, right? With So much talk about adoption is is amongst the adults. And the babies in question are, are never children that exist or, or adults with that lived experience who get to have input it's all of us thinking about like what's the best next move and you know even I was in that position as a a young pregnant person I didn't god I didn't think about you know how it might impact my kids to be separated from me now I think about it Mm -hmm. every single time I see them you know my younger kid is four it's an age where sometimes the end of a play date is hard and you don't want Mm -hmm. your friend to go home and every time I go home I have this like massive eternal like okay we would get upset when any friend is going home I'm not traumatizing much Child by leaving, or maybe I am, but I'm going to come back, and I'm doing my best, and I, yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm I'm here, but nobody nobody prepares you for that. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. Wow. I want to throw one other thing into the mix. I mean, we've got we've covered a lot, but we touched on surrogacy,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and there is regulation of surrogacy. There is regulation of reproductive rights, and every country kind of tackles it differently. It seems that we now live in a country that more heavily is restricting reproductive rights Mm -hmm. than surrogacy rights. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are. I think that a way that the state controls reproduction really just says a lot about that culture. And what do you think that this moment that we're living through is saying about this culture that we
0: are we are in. It's interesting. If there's a couple of different thoughts that come up for me, right? Because surrogacy and adoption are both regulated on a state by state basis. There there are still states where surrogacy is completely legal. Only 3 of them, but they're there. Because these things are so disjointed and the laws are so different state to state. One of the things that tells me is that the empire is too big. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The self-governing communities need to be smaller and more in touch with each other and less chronically online. The other thing that I take away from our like hyper focus on regulating and criminalizing abortion and regulating surrogacy and our prioritization as queer people of the ability of wealthy married queer couples to adopt and to hire surrogates is that it's a it's about commodification and it's about Mm. climbing a social ladder through capital and status. One of the ways that my views expanded when I was training as a doula is about this notion of reproductive justice. We talk a lot about reproductive justice when we're talking about abortion specifically. And for a long time, sort of my whole thought about reproductive justice was about access to abortion. Now I am thinking so much more about how reproductive justice means access to hospitable circumstances to have a baby, if you wish, and how reproductive justice means creating an environment in which people actually have the freedom of choice, and you don't have the freedom to choose to have a baby if all of the things that you need to do so are withheld from you. Absolutely. I think that reproductive justice is really inextricably linked from access to mental health care. Uh, It's inextricably linked from the way that we deal with substance use disorders and harm reduction, um, access to housing and food and all of those things, and clearly, we don't care about that stuff. Um, and the other the other thing that I that I really take away as I watch how different messages are sort of guided to different people is that we are not shy about placing race-based value on mm-hmm. life, right? Like who is encouraged to have an abortion and who is encouraged to place their baby for adoption
1: i think we have to let folks marinate on that this was really enlightening and i mean amazing to learn more about your journey but also just to be able to share this time with your brain has been so wonderful
2: and i've learned so much i had no idea about most of these subjects so i really appreciate you spending the time to let us know about all this it's really important huge ethical things going on. I'm,
0: I'm so grateful to have an opportunity to to climb up on my podium um, and talk about this <laughs> stuff. I could do it all day.
1: <laughs> I know. I, I feel like we could keep talking for hours about all of this. So thank you. It, you've been so generous with your time and your knowledge. And this has been wonderful.
0: Oh, my pleasure.
1: Well, that was not only enlightening... But also just so much information. What did you what did you think about that talk with Ryan, that second half of our interview?
2: You know, one of the biggest things for me really was realizing how little I've considered the experience of the birthing parent. Yeah. Ryan made a great point about how our society really applauds the people adopting. Yep. And is just like lucky you to the people who get adopted, and we throw away the birthing parent and I just have so much empathy and sympathy now for people going through that what Ryan described that year that they had of of seeing the child and everything and back and forth but even just even if you didn't go through that just getting left in that hospital you're your your belly is empty oh god i mean there's yeah, that great no, I... there's that great deflation that happens yep. and you're just bleeding and bleeding and bleeding for for weeks and you have this body that's prepared for a baby to not have it must really feel like you had a stillborn child or something yeah. it's got to be Devastating, Having a part of you ripped away. And really the hero in this situation in a lot of ways. I mean, everybody can be hero- heroic in this situation, but the birthing parent is going through so much and our society does not acknowledge that. I think that's a, it's a huge revelation for me that I appreciate about this conversation. It's changed my perspective completely.
1: Yeah, I think that Ryan's so eloquently and also with empathy speaks about these flaws in the system. Uh, You know, I've known a couple people who are adopted and the sort of invisible trauma Mm -hmm. that exists for them is like, is something that I, is a through line that I have observed in, um, people that I've been close to who've gone through adoption. And I, I think that Brian also really spoke to the importance of adoptees having a real voice Mm -hmm. in how these laws are constructed, Mm -hmm. how the experiences of birthing parents and adoptees are handled Mm -hmm. for all of us just to be thinking kind of critically. And I, I do think that there are some ways in which at least in California The adoption laws and the ways in which they're thinking about family of origin Mm -hmm. being prioritized whenever the state has to step in. I think it's a really violent institution.
2: And I also want to acknowledge, like we know so many people who have adopted children and they have wonderful families. That is a huge deal to adopt kids, bring them into your life. And, And raising kids on any level is hardcore stuff and commendable thing to be doing.
1: And I do think it is like a process, at least with the folks that we know who have adopted, where there is a lot of, Trauma informed education that Mm. was made available to Mm -hmm. them. And I don't know that that's true across the country. Right. And I appreciate that that, I mean, that is something I have observed in everyone that we know who has adopted kids is that they are really parenting
2: from a very trauma informed space. And it is. Hard. And that is a situation where they're fostering. So these are kids that are coming from homes that are really not okay for kids to be in, you know, and we need people to be able to take them out of those homes and put them in places where they can be safe, you know.
1: But it is interesting that I think that Ryan brought up that it is also an industry. yes.
2: And that there's marketing around it. And so it's complicated. Yeah. So then there's that other leg of it. There's the foster leg, which Brian also talked about how there's so much implicit racism in that how depending on how you look, you might be, for instance, drug tested without your permission and things like that. And that's fucked up. And so the foster care system is all fucked. But then the whole system of basically buying children. Yeah, private adoption. I know. I'm really glad that we
1: spent two episodes to talk to Ryan. And I think that this shouldn't be the only conversation that we have on this topic. I'm really interested in getting some different perspectives and spending a little bit of time on this because, you know, Ryan got us thinking really critically. Yeah. About this and like you said with a lot of empathy and I, I agree that
2: I just feel I feel a lot of feels yeah, about this topic in this episode. So much nuance to a very important incredibly important topic so more on it to come and it's been so nice to have this conversation with you sarah i always enjoy seeing your face you too we would love it if you would follow us on tiktok and instagram at fuck yeah pod or you can email us at f at gmail.com and with that fuck yeah Fuck yeah Podcast is hosted and produced by Sarah Tom Chesson, hashtag my mom, and Robin Jennings. Theme music is by She, Her, Sir. If you're enjoying the podcast, it would mean a lot if you would write, review, subscribe, or share with a friend. You can get in touch by emailing us at fyapod at gmail.com or find us online at fuckyapod.com.